I'm James Hahn II, and you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast, brought to you by Red Wing. This is episode 53.5. Point five episodes are my chance to speak with entrepreneurs, executives, and thought leaders from inside and outside the industry to hear their stories, what inspires their work, what culture drives their company, what innovations they're bringing to the oil field. My guest today is Victor Antonio. Victor came from a poor upbringing in one of the roughest areas of Chicago, but that didn't stop him from earning his BS in electrical engineering and his MBA. He went on to build a 20-year career as a top sales executive and became president of global sales and marketing for a $420 million company and subsequently CEO of a multi-million dollar high-tech enterprise. Never one to rest on his laurels, Victor moved on to become vice president of international sales in a $3 billion Fortune 500 company, where he was selected from over 500 sales managers to join the president's advisory council for excellence in sales and management. Victor has conducted business in Europe, Asia, Saudi Arabia, Australia, Latin America, the Middle East, the United Arab Emirates, and South Africa. He can now add TV host to his resume because his new show, Life or Debt, debuts on Spike TV this Sunday, March 13th. Victor Antonio, welcome to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, my man. I'm, I'm glad to be here, James. Looking forward to this conversation. It has been quite some time since we first met back in 2009. I saw your, I saw your, the, well, the, the documentary that was made on you. I said, I got to be friends with this guy. Right. The Motivator. You saw my documentary, The Motivator. I did. I saw the documentary, The Motivator, and, and I was trying my first business and I was like, I'm going to, I'm just going to fake it till I make it. I'm going to get on the phone with this guy <laughs> and, <laughs> and we're going to, and we're going to become friends in, in, by my dumb luck, it has happened and a lot has changed since then, but. Let's start back with your story because, well, first of all, we have to preface this because you do have a show coming out. It's, it's debuting on Spike TV called Life or Debt, and it debuts March 13th. Is that right? That is correct, James. I, I, I remember talking to you back when you were doing – it was what more than a year ago when you were doing the pilots, and I, I can't wait for this show. But you have a very fascinating backstory before you became the big time celebrity that's given me a hard time before we press record. <laughs> so tell us where you come from, Victor. All right. Born and raised in Chicago. My family's originally from Puerto Rico, but I was born in Chicago near the Humble Park area, which is really not too far, uh, you know, from the Cabrini Green, that kind of a little triangle area there. And I went to William H. Wells High School. So back in the day, it was a little rough neighborhood, if you know what I mean. It was, it was really the hood. Um, and so we didn't have a lot of money growing up and I remember, uh, you know, the food stamps and stuff like that. So we were, you know, we struggled. I always got the hand me down cause I was the youngest of, you know, seven. And so it was always interesting. So mom was always like, you know, go to school, get the education, get the J-O-B. So I went to school, got the education, uh, have electrical engineering degree and an MBA, uh, did corporate America, did that for a while. I hated engineering when I first got into it. I did it for the money, James, which is not always a good reason to do something. Three years into my gig, I said, I hate this. And I started meandering in different positions. But when I found sales, it's like, you know, I always say I hit that hyper pad. I found my thing, you know, the, the thing I'm good at. 
And from there, everything took off, you know, became a, you know, director of sales, vice president of sales, president of sales and marketing, and then eventually a CEO of a technology company out of Virginia. And then back in uh, 2001, May 9th, 2001, 3.48 p.m. to be exact, you know, I walked away. And it was simply because I wanted to do other things. I wanted to write books. I wanted to reach back into the neighborhood and help other people. And that's been a 15-year journey now. So it's been a very interesting career path. I want to go back to the beginning, though, because where like when you, I was born, where, no, where, where, where you grew up, because it's very interesting to me that now you have this life or debt series coming out and you grew up in in poverty mm -hmm. in Chicago. And yep. what did what was it like for you growing up? I mean, you lived in the projects. No, no, no. Uh, we were near the projects. Uh, like I said, the Carita Green uh, housing projects were about, I'd say about a mile or two from us, maybe three. Um, they're no longer there. They tore them down. And for us, it was just, I mean, what is poor be like? Uh, you know, when you're a kid, you don't realize that you're poor. You just know you don't have a lot of things. But back in the day, you know, before video games and all these other things, electronic devices, you know, you would go outside and you're on the street all the time. You know, you play kick the can, kick ball, play baseball, you know, games like pinners, fastball, pitching with a rubber ball. You find ways to entertain yourself. And so even though we didn't have a lot, you know, at the, at the, at the time, you don't realize you're poor. You're just growing up. It really starts hitting you that you're poor when you get to high school. Because then the peer pressure kicks in and the comparisons begin. You know how people like different clothing and you realize you can't afford the clothing. Uh, I remember uh, that I realized I was poor because I always wanted a pair of Chuck Taylors, right? Converse All-Stars, right? Right. And my older brother got a pair and my mother couldn't afford to buy me a pair. So she took me over to the store called, it was like a five and dime store called Jupiter. And, and she got me one of those, you know, really low cost gym shoes that had the plastic bottoms that every time you tried to stop in a gym, if you're on a wooden floor, you'd slide, you know, <laughs> and I remember everybody making fun of my cheap gym shoes all the time. And it's just, they didn't have the $20 at the time, whatever they cost to buy a pair of, you know, Chuck Taylor's Converse All-Stars. So, you know, those are things where you start realizing, okay, maybe we don't have a lot of money. I remember having patches in my, my, my pants. Yes. When I had a hole in my pants. My mother would put patches. You know, I just remember all these little things that just reminded us that, okay, we don't have that much money. But, you know, it was a good upbringing, though, you know, given the limited resources. So was that what informed your decision in engineering? You said, all right, I realize I don't have money. I want money. Engineers make money. I'm going to go become an engineer. Yeah, it was pretty much that. But let me put some uh, texture to that. My father was working at a place called the Acme Frame Planning Company. And it was like a dirty job. It was beyond blue collar hours. It was black collar because it was dirty. You know what? It was like a dirty factory. And I remember he would come home. His, his hands were always like gnarled, you know, real callous. And he would always like blow his nose and just black stuff would come out. And I remember my older brother dropped out of high school and he had to go work at the factory with my father. And he didn't like that after a year. And, I, and I'm almost sure he regretted leaving high school. So when any thought of high school dropping out for me, the thought of dropping out of high school rather, uh, was pretty much, you know, a moot point because my mother would remind me, if you drop out of high school, you have to go work with your father at the factory. I'm like, whoa, let's, I'm not doing that. And then when I graduated from high school, my mother was like, well, if you don't go to college, you got to go work at the factory with your father. So I'm like, oh, let's go to college. And I remember I was sitting in my physics class in uh, high school and 
you know, I had I had to pick a I had to pick a college, right? And so there were these advertisements on the wall, you know, the what do you call those the cork boards, mm-hmm. and I saw you know Illinois Institute of Technology, and I remember I asked my teacher, hey, is this a good school? He's like, it's a very good school. It's an engineering school. I said, do engineers make a lot of money? He says, yes, they do, Victor. And I still remember to this day, I went through that bingo card, I call it, you know, where you can check out if you want more information on civil engineering, mechanical engineering, send you the application plus more information, right? I didn't know what civil engineers were. I didn't know really what mechanical engineers did. The only thing that resonated with me was electrical engineering. And then I asked again, do electrical engineers make a lot of money? He's like, yeah, they make pretty good money. Boom, in, I'm done. Fill out the form, send it in. And I remember I applied to two colleges. And the reason I, I chose IIT is that the other one wanted a matriculation fee, in other words, fee to you know, say, I'm committed to go to your school, of $250, and IIT only wanted like $50. And all I could afford was $50, or all my parents could afford was $50. So that's how I chose my college. How did you pay to get through college? Uh, we were so poor. I, I applied for every, I had Pell Grants, uh, every type of government grant. Uh, I wound up, uh, just to put it in today's dollars, I wound up owing, when I graduated, only one year's worth of tuition. Wow. It wasn't much. So at the time, when I was paying for college tuition, just to show you how out of whack things are now, uh, my annual tuition was like almost like 5000 I think it was like $4,800 a year. Maybe it went up to like 5000 But I graduated only owing about $5,000, a far cry from what you see today. So you graduate from college and then go where? I get an engineering degree. Uh, during that time, during college, I interned at a lot of different companies. You know, I... Uh, uh, I worked at Channel 5, WMAQ uh, in Chicago, the Merchandise Mart. I was actually running the camera for the uh, 5, 6, and 10 News as part of my really? internship program. Yes. Um, that was my first exposure to TV and behind the scenes. And then I worked for a company out of Burns Harbor, Indiana during the summer called Bethlehem Steel. Uh, first time I've ever been in a steel mill. Amazing. Amazing people, amazing production and facility. And then I got a summer job working for Honeywell in their undersea systems division. That was the, that was the division that actually uh, produced the torpedoes, the Mach 46 and the Mach 50 torpedoes. If you saw the movie Hunt for Red October, the American sub was actually firing Mach 46 torpedoes. And so I was working on some of the software algorithm for that torpedo system, or the newer version rather for the Mach 50. And so when I graduated from college, uh, there was a job offer waiting for me to go work at their test center where we would test components that would go into all the uh, munitions and all the military equipment. It's really interesting because Honeywell has a very strong presence in oil and gas. Do they? I didn't know that, James. Yes, they do. And you're talking to uh, a lot of engineers right now. So oh. <laughs> I think they, under- they understand where you're coming from. Oh, you know, and, I, and I, again, I loved engineering. Uh, you know, we, I worked in the electronic test center where, again, we would test all the, what they call discrete or digital components that went through the system, uh, but everything from the electrical side to the environmental side on testing, you know, thermal shock, heats, and all that. And so it was really fascinating to find out all about, you know, quality assurance at that time. You know, that was starting to become very big before Six Sigma. And so total quality management, you know, is a Malcolm Baldrige Award. I think we won it one time. So, you know, I got to appreciate quality production at an early age. And how long were you climbing the corporate ladder before you went out on your own? Well, think about it. Uh, so I graduated in uh, 86, December. So I started in 87 officially, January of 87. So all the way through 2001. So I can't do math right now, but I think that's 20, what, 17 years? Yeah. Is that right? Some, 17? Somewhere around there. 
So that's how long. And so uh, the first, again, three years, maybe four, but I think it's more like three. I was in engineering and it was hardcore engineering. We were like programming, you know, these testers to test components. We were doing circuit board testing and we were always writing programs out. And I realized it, it just wasn't me. And so then they moved me into a, why don't you supervise the test facility for us, Victor? So then I moved into a supervisory role, which was good because I got to really get a bigger view of all the things that are done within a facility. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then I kind of said, man, I'm not digging this either. And then I moved over to a, a wireless company. I left Honeywell, went over to a wireless company, and I became an application engineer designing wireless systems for the public safety market. So for police officers and, you know, fire departments. And so I worked in that market. So I would actually design the actual systems, you know, everything from the base stations to the antennas, uh, the towers and all that good stuff. And I liked application engineering because it was like, it wasn't so detailed. It was a little more removed from the, the bits and the bytes. And now it was, it was almost like putting a system together. And I really enjoyed that more. And if I could just take the step one step further, once I did that, I became very good at it. When I was at the company called EF Johnson, which is still around in Minnesota, uh, a sales position opened up in Latin America. And they were looking for a person who was an engineer and could speak Spanish. And I was like, hello. And at that time, around that time, we had our first child and my wife wanted to stay home and we wanted to make money. So let me see. Technology, background, he speaks Spanish and he needs to make money. Yeah, that's me again. Right. And that's how I got into sales. <laughs> and. How how did your journey work out with money, taking the transition from out of the hood, if you will? Yeah. Because I know for myself personally, I'm still working on this, where I grew up in a mm -hmm. household that had a horrible philosophy around money. The, mm -hmm. I've, I've heard it, I don't even know how many thousands of times, it's just money, it comes and it goes. Mm. And uh, we would always hear uh, money doesn't grow on trees. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> so, so did you, did you grow up then knowing how to save and how to take care of your money? No, not really. I'd like to tell you I did, but I didn't. Uh, I would, I, the way I would make money is I would hustle for money. So for example, uh, one of my first jobs was a newspaper, you know, uh, kid, but I hated it because you had to go pick up the money. Remember, I don't know if you know that back in the day, you had to actually go collect the money. And sometimes you had to knock on doors and depending on what you collected, you know, it basically determined how much you got paid. So I didn't like that. So I still remember also like collecting bottles. Remember back in the day when people collected bottles? Just oh, yeah. Well, in your up in Illinois and Michigan, not, yeah, not yeah, down yeah. here in Texas. But. Okay. But yeah, so, but yeah. you know, collect bottles. I used to collect cans. Uh, I remember uh, uh, I remember I spent the whole day collecting cans, took it over to the junkyard, right? Big bag, right? And the guy gave me like, I don't know, I'm going to say like 75 cents. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and so <clears throat> the next time what I did was, uh, this is kind of, this is so wrong. And I do not recommend this because this is so wrong what I just did, what I did back then, is that I got the idea, I'll put, file this under innovation. I got the idea to put mud in the cans, right? Oh. And, and then I would smash the cans, right? And let, let them dry. And they were much heavier when I took them to the junkyard. <laughs> it's Just so a wrong. poor kid hustling so for some cash, though. Yeah, yeah. So I, I made a little more money that way. But you know, you know, I, we were never taught to save because there was nothing to save, and you know, everything was always on the layaway plan. Do you remember back in the day where you bought a pair of pants and you had to put it on layaway? I bought means, my first television on layaway. Yeah, and you could, but back where I was at, you couldn't take it home. 
No. I don't know if you knew that. You couldn't take, you had to leave it there, right? Yeah. yeah. You had to keep paying for it until you finally paid it. Then you could get it. By that time, it was out of fashion because it took so long to actually pay for the clothes. But I mean, that was the thing that we were that, you know, financially in the hole sometimes. And I remember there were times where, you know, our neighbors would sneak food to us. You know, my father would get mad because my father, you know, early on had a drinking problem. And so he would drink a lot of the money. And I can only imagine because of the stress he must have been going under, uh, the stress he was under. And so, you know, we would try just try to make ends meet, man. I mean, it was, you know, everybody had to get a job. Everybody had to go to work just to bring some money home. And sometimes we had to wait. I remember to the end of the month to get some food. We were so excited when the food stamps came at the end of the month because, man, the pantry was dry, if you know what I mean. There was nothing in there. And, uh, you know, growing up, all I knew was rice and beans. You know, it, I, I believe that rice and beans was with everything. You know, it's all like automatic. Your chicken, rice and beans. Pork chops, rice and beans. Everything. Spaghetti, rice and beans. <laughs> spaghetti. You know what I mean? I mean, everything. You don't understand, James. It was all about the rice and the beans. Because it, my mother would buy this 100-pound bag of rice that would basically sustain us for a whole month. You know, no joke. I mean, it was it – was, uh, we, we lived lean and we never – Look, I, I went to my first restaurant to eat, like an official sit-down restaurant. I went in my second year of college. That's when I got the intern at, uh, at NBC. Because, yeah, and, and I remember when I sat down at the restaurant for the first time, it was like, wow, so this is a restaurant. I mean, think about that, James. Wow. I'm like 1920. And wow. I remember the lady comes over, and I was with somebody, and she looks at me. She goes, would you like a carafe of water? And I said, and I'm thinking, did she just say giraffe? You know, I'm not making this up. And I go, and I remember I looked at her. I go, what do you, what, what's that? And she goes, you know, a carafe of water. I go, I'm like, what's that? I didn't even know what the word appetizer was. I'm not making this up, James. I'm just telling you, I went through a culture shock when I went to, when I started working and really getting out of the hood, because college took me out of the hood, right? And so now I'm 19, I'm in college, and that took me out of the hood. And that's when I really began experiencing life outside the hood. So you were 19 until you sat down in a restaurant for the first time. That's correct. You know, you get a hot dog at the corner store. You know, Chicago's known for their great hot dogs, right? Yes. But that's the first time I've ever been in a restaurant. Like, we didn't have sit-down meals. You know what I mean? At the table. Right. We didn't sit down together because everybody was always doing something. We never got together as a family to sit down and have dinner and polite conversation. It was, it's weird. You know what I mean? Well, everybody had to hustle. Right. And so I remember when I met my wife and uh, we went to her house for dinner for the first time. And I'm like, oh, my God, they actually sit down at the same time at the same table. You know, they say grace. You know, the, I mean, it was it was it, it, it may sound petty, but I'm just telling you, this is real. I, this is what I went through. It was like it was all this was like a new world because you're so busy hustling just to make ends meet. So then once you started making money, did you just blow through it? <laughs> No, I don't think I ever blew through. I've never been in like serious debt. I've never been in serious debt. Uh, the only stupid decision I made was when I graduated from college and I bought, excuse me, I graduated from college and I bought a new RX-7. <laughs> I had to pay $357 every month for five years. I'll never do that again. But, you know, it was always like we were always breaking even. And then when me and my wife got together, this I met her in my last year of college uh, and we got married about two years later after I graduated. And uh, when we had our first child, we were struggling. Even with the job, we were struggling. You know, I mean, sometimes we had about $100 in the bank only. You know, that was it. 
And sometimes we had to borrow $102, you know, $100 or $200 because, of, you know, we were struggling early on. But we were never in debt, though. That was the good thing. You, you knew or you learned to not take on credit cards in debt? I think we learned. I'd like to tell you that I knew that intuitively, but I learned. And I think that, that, that first car payment or that first car and their payments, I said, I'll never do that again. And so we've always strived to be zero debt. And so we've been zero debt for, I don't know, I'm going to say at least 10 years, maybe more, you know, close to 15. By, by zero debt, I mean everything's paid off which means you, you zero out everything at the end of the month. We're talking mortgage, car payments, everything. The reason, so, I'm, uh, sorry. The reason I'm bringing this up is because it's a difficult time for a lot of people in the oil field right now. Right. Prices are low in the upstream oil field, I should say. Midstream mm-hmm. is doing pretty relatively well. Downstream, they're making, I mean, they're printing money downstream. But there's a lot of layoffs and there's a lot of people struggling and you see a lot of these oil field memes and so forth of oil, the oil field at a hundred dollars a barrel and there's a big mega truck there. And mm-hmm. then it's, you know, the oil field today and it's, you know, somebody eating ramen noodles or something. Right. And it breaks my heart because these guys make so damn much money mm-hmm. when they're out there in the field. Right. And, I don't know how many of us in this industry plan for the future mm. because this is a cyclical market. If sure. you're, if you're, if you're reliant on upstream, you're going to, you're going to go through boom mm-hmm. and bust. Yep. And if you don't store that away, it's going to be difficult for you. So that's kind of why I'm digging into all of this with you okay. because it's interesting to hear where you came from and what those of us in the oil field, and even myself personally, I'm still admittedly working on getting my finances together so that I can not be struggling when maybe that client doesn't come through or whatever that month. So, so at, at what point in your career did you really start to understand money? The, you know, my wife gets a lot of credit for that because she was early on, she hates bills. She hates paying finance fees, you know, on credit cards and things like that. So early on, she was more like that. My wife is like the definition of frugal. I mean, if you look at the dictionary, you know, looking them up in the dictionary, she's going to see her face in there because she's very frugal. And I've always enjoyed that about her because what she's one of these people that doesn't like to overspend and just buys enough all the time. And so she's never been about, you know, and I think I've learned a lot from her because she's never been, you know, some people who are just flamboyant, you know, have to have the latest purses with the latest name brands and all that stuff. She's just not like that. You know, she's very simple, but yet classy. And she doesn't like to spend money on things that don't need to be bought. And so, you know, in this show, Life or Debt, referencing the show, is that we work with a lot of families who didn't put the money away. Well, let's look at why they didn't put the money away. Well, they were trying to keep up with the Joneses, right? They were living beyond their means. You know, every, everything was on the credit card. You know, and you buy things you don't really need. And I'll tie this back to what happened back in 2000. Was it 2001 when the market crashed? 2000, I think it was 2001 was the tech bubble. In 2007, 2008, the market crashed again, right? <clears throat> and what happened, by the way, excuse my voice. I've been talking all day since yesterday, so I apologize. The, one of the things I learned early on is the zero debt. And I had friends who would tell me I was an idiot. 
said, Victor, you, you, you got to have all your money in your house, right? All that money is just sitting there not doing anything. And I came from a, you know, from a very low-income family. I want security, James. That's how I tie in what happened to my, you know, how up my upbringing conditioned me. I don't trust anything. When you're poor and you live a life of insecurity where you don't know where your next meal is coming from, where you don't know what you can afford, where you don't know if the landlord's going to kick us out because we never owned a home, right? It was just apartment to apartment to apartment, right? When you get to my age, you wanted to have your own house. People didn't understand that. I didn't care if I could use that money or leverage it to do other things with it. I wanted a house that I knew was mine. And that was the, the, the driving force to own it. And so if somebody's listening to this and you know they're in a big house they can't afford, get the hell out of the big house. Go find a small house you can afford. Pay that thing off. Because once you have your home base secure, James, and I think this is something people don't uh, think about, when you have everything paid off, okay, and again, some debt is okay. If it's rotating debt, but if you clear out at the end of the month, you're not paying a lot of interest, that's okay. But, you know, if you have a house right now and move to something that you can afford, once you can afford your lifestyle and begin to reduce your debt, put that under your control, what happens, James, is now you can make better decisions about your future. In other words, because I didn't have debt, I decided I wanted to do a lot of public speaking. Well, as you know, the public speaking world is not just turn on the switch and you start making money. It takes now, years. Yes. Now, if I was in debt in the hole, I would never have made that decision. But because I was financially stable, I can make a better decision and take more risk. See, this is the true cost of debt. And that is you are not allowed to take uh, chances, risk. Try something new because you're so in debt, you're worried. And I think that robs us of our dreams, of things we want to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense because you, is, it, as Zig Ziglar would say, money isn't everything, but it ranks right up there with oxygen. Correct. And money gives you the freedom to be able to make decisions to go and do what you want to do, follow your dreams and so forth. Or even just keep up a, a standard of living, a, an acceptable standard of living, whatever that means to you, mm -hmm. to plan for that. That's, I mean, that's it right there. It's a standard, what it means to you, not what it means to other people or how people view you. You know, I, I drive a, a Volvo that's a 2000 Volvo, James. That means it's 16 years old. I'm still driving it. I'm about to hit 200,000 miles on this bad boy. And I always get the question, you know, why don't you know, you know, why don't you buy a new car, Victor? I'm like, why? I said, this one runs just fine. Do you see, you see the mindset? It's just a different mindset. And, and if that's going to be, if I were to jump in there, that's going to be a little uh, different than some of your neighbors because you live in a pretty nice neighborhood in Georgia. My neighbors have a Porsche, has a Cayenne Porsche. Uh, he drives this uh, little Audi also as a sports car just because for, you know, for shits and grins. You know what I mean? And, but I don't care what he drives. You know what I mean? That's how I look at it. I don't care. And if I can tell you this quick story to really drive home how I learned this lesson from my wife. Uh, we've been out together almost 30 years now, so I've learned a lot from her. And I remember when we were starting out, we bought her a second car, right? Now imagine, I had the new RX-7. She has this Buick Skylark. We're living in Minnesota. This thing has so many rust holes in it, right? It's just ugly. One day I'm by the kitchen window. I'm looking out at the car, right? And I tell my wife, I said, you know, 
we need to get you a new car. And she says, why? She goes, I said, well, what do you mean why? Just look at it. Now, what you needed to know about this car, James, is that inside it was immaculate. But outside it was, it was horrible, right? So I said, we need to get a new car. She goes, why? She goes, well, look at it. I said, I said, look at it. It looks horrible. She goes, well, what do I care? I'm on the inside looking out. I don't ever have to look at it. Mm. Now, now, think about that for a second. My brain just locked up. What my wife taught me was that I don't care what other people think of it. What I see is fine. And is that an interesting paradigm shift? It changes everything because yeah. if you're keeping up with the Joneses, you're always going to be in debt. In this show, we talk about that 75, 75, 75% of American families live in paycheck to paycheck, right? Most of them don't even have $1,000 to cover an emergency. So think about that. 75% are struggling. So when you look around your neighborhood, guess what? Three out of those four houses are struggling. So you're trying to keep up with Joneses who are broke. It's almost like we're feeding on each other. That's, and it's you, a fascinating stat. Yeah, you see that all over Houston where I, I look around, I see really expensive cars and, and, and it, all the other things that go along with it, the bags and the so forth. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me because there are people here that have money. Don't, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of people with money. But you can't really tell who is the actual baller, if you will, yep. because there's so many of us Americans are living in debt that you, you look at, uh, okay, so you're driving a, a new, I don't whatever the, you know, a Bentley or whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, I don't even, I don't even know if you can afford that car. Yeah, it's probably, it's probably leased, right? You know, lease equals fleeced because that's what they're doing. They're fleecing you for your money. But again, it's all about the image, right? It's all about you want people to perceive you in a certain way. And I, and I see that a lot. When we work with these families, so we worked with 11 families, and I remember one in particular. If you saw these family jams, you would swear this is like the ideal family. Beautiful Caucasian couple, right? He was like an Adonis, just a handsome dude, 6'3", right? She was like a prom queen or something, right? Beautiful couple, gorgeous couple, four kids. Four beautiful kids, two boys, two girls, beautiful kids, beautiful house, the white picket fence, lovely cars, and the dog named Boo to complete the set. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you look at this and you're like, this is a perfect family. Until I go in there and I start scratching the surface just a little bit. And guess what? It wasn't perfect. No savings in debt that were going into the hole every month. But from the outside, damn, they look good. And that's what I see now. See, after doing this show, I really now see people in a whole different light. You know, I, I now admire people who are, you know, if you drive a nice, expensive car, it doesn't impress me. The only thing that impresses me is the size of your bank account. And remember the book that came out, uh, I think it was back in 1995 or something like that, The Millionaire Next Door? Yes. Remember that? They talked about the average millionaire drives, a, you know, a two, three-year-old pickup truck, wears jeans, buys them over at Walmart, doesn't spend a lot of money. He's socking away money, right? And so I think this show is about getting back to the basics and, and stop trying to live somebody else's dream. So if somebody in the oil and gas industry is listening to this and they've just been laid off, you know, that's unfortunate because now it's, it's, it might be tough to get another job. But if you still have a job today, if you still have a job today, man, start cutting back on your expenses. Start living within your means. Stop trying to impress people. You know what I mean? If you've got to move to a smaller house, 
that's okay. Just try to pay things off. I, it, look, we got a recession coming down the road. It could be next year, two years from now. It's coming, James. You know it is. Definitely. You know, you can always, something's not right. You know, wages have stagnated since the 1970s, right? This is kind of how it's all worked. Since the 1970s, wages haven't really gone up. So what happens? Two people now go to work instead of one, right? Because that was a dual income families, right? So because people want to maintain their lifestyle. So the wife or the husband had to go to work now. So what happened? Once again, inflation kicks in again, that wasn't enough. So then people move on to credit cards, right? They start putting stuff down on credit cards. Well, after they exhaust their credit cards and they still can't keep up, they start using their house like an ATM machine, right? Taking out, you know, second mortgages, right? Equity loans, right? And then what happens? The collapse and everything just falls apart like the house of cards. And so what's happening now is that, you know, I don't care what the unemployment number is. That's, that's a bogus number, right? That's four point whatever it is. It's such a bogus number. We have the lowest job participation rate in 30 years. Um, the wages that people are earning are nowhere near what they were earning, let's say, five to seven years ago. And inflation is real. All you got to do is go to the grocery store to see that your $100 doesn't buy you that four or five bags of groceries that it used to. Just you try know, to buy some bacon. Is a, <laughs> come on, man. Check out the price of bacon going, come on, I just want some bacon. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the media and they make it sound like everything's fine. I'm like, no, everybody knows intuitively something's wrong. I'm going to the grocery store and I can't buy as much as I used to buy. What happened? And my wages haven't gone up. My house is still expensive. Property taxes are going up. I don't even want to talk about uh, you know, Obamacare and what that's done, you know, especially to people who are self-employed, who are 1099s. I mean, it's amazing how all these costs are just going up and how some people do it is amazing. So I always get back to the fact, start reducing your debt load. Just start, you know, really just start getting rid of stuff, you know, and just start paying things down. And I just went through that in my move. I, I was amazed at how many things I had in my house that because I, I was going, okay, I got to give the new landlord $1,200 mm -hmm. and okay, let me sell this. Let me sell this. Let me, I ended up with $1,500 mm -hmm. and things that were just sitting in my house that I just didn't use. Yeah. And, and I, and I, I got to imagine that's the case for the majority of Americans. Absolutely. We found that one of the things we do when we work with this family is that we look for the hidden assets in their house. And we find on average, we can find like maybe two to $3,000 worth of hidden assets, you know, in their house. And what we do is we take them to consignment or, you know, stores to sell, or we just try to sell them outright. And then we use that money to pay down some of their debt. That's part of the strategy of life or debt. And so moving forward, I mean, you have, uh, you've enlightened us with a lot today. What, what would you say then? It sounds like we've maybe covered it already. The one thing that that you learned from working with these families that anyone in the oil field could take away. I think the there's a lot of things. So it's a, it's a tough question, but but I, but I I want to put a top spin, if not an emphasis, on this. We always believe that our house is our biggest investment, right? I no longer believe that. I used to I used to also repeat that lie. I now believe that the biggest investment is the individual, right? And your job. And by that, I mean, is that if you're in the oil and gas industry or any industry, and you just do a particular job, I would take care to try to learn other types of jobs within that field. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Really expand my knowledge, really try to become more valuable. So if I'm, if I only know about drilling, then I want to know what's beyond drilling. You know what I mean? 
I want to know about operations. I want to know about costs. I want to know about how things work. I want to know more. In other words, instead of just doing my job, I want to learn everything around my job so I create more value for myself and my bosses will notice that. And if you're thinking, well, my boss won't notice it, but it doesn't matter. Even if you go to another job, you're taking all this skill set with you, right? This new amplified skill set with you to another job. So if you're listening uh, and you're in that position where you're learning something, try to learn more. Invest in yourself. You know, take an extra course. Just learn different things or try different positions, by the way, within a company. And that's one of the things I did early on, James. I forgot to mention that. When I decided I didn't want to be an engineer, I moved around a lot within Honeywell. And I, had, I played different positions, to put it that way. And that allowed me to get an understanding of different aspects of the business. And that just made me more valuable over time. And I remember we went through a downsizing. And I was one of the few people who didn't get cut. You know, and it could have been my salary, but I think it was also because I knew a lot about the business. And I can work different positions. So for those folks listening, learn how to play different positions. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We just mentioned that on the career show a couple of weeks ago where so Mark was talking to someone and the particular company in the industry is laying people off. But the person that, that he knew was interviewing for a promotion that same day. Look at that. Yep. And, and, and so it just reinforces your point. You got to be a lifelong learner and you got to get to know everything about what you do so that you increase your value and Absolutely. and the more you increase your value the more back to that obviously we know that security doesn't actually exist in this world but the mm -hmm. more secure you can be victor thank you for enlightening us today and for being on the show i can't thank you enough brother i really really look forward actually march 13th is my is my sister's birthday so it's a nice birthday present for her and i can't wait for this in do you know uh, what time and how people can tune in? Uh, it's going to be on Spike TV, March 13th, this uh, next Sunday, not this Sunday, next Sunday, March 13th. Uh, it's going to premiere at 10 p.m. Eastern time, right after Bar Rescue time, 9 o'clock Central. Perfect. Okay. And and if anybody wants to get in touch with you or get to know you more, where would you send them? VictorAntonio.com. Perfect. Thanks so much, Victor. Thank you, James. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to this 0.5 episode of the Oil & Gas This Week podcast. Join us again tomorrow when we will talk to James Wanjama, as we promised, about his passion for oil and gas and how it was cultivated growing up in rural Kenya with no running water or electricity until he was a teenager. Until then, go find some grease, guys.